Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and with me today is Joe McCormick, my beloved co-host from Forward Thinking, well, one of two. The other one's also beloved, but she's not here. That was a terrible introduction. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm doing fine. How are you, Jonathan? Uh, I'm all right. So we're recording this in December 2015, uh, well in advance of when it will publish. It will publish in January 2016. And uh, Joe, you and I are kind of like right in the crunch for people who do podcasts and videos as holidays loom up. So I say that to alert our listeners that we might get a little loopy, and that's only kind of a pun because we're talking about Moog synthesizers and sometimes musicians <laughs> use loops. <laughs> So yeah, we're going to talk about Moog synthesizers. And when I brought this up, I I gave Joe a list of potential topics. These were all ones that were suggested by by listeners. So thank you guys for sending in your suggestions. That's awesome. I really appreciate it. And Moog synthesizers are kind of amazingly cool. Jonathan, they are not cool. They are cool. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, uh, for the longest time, I thought it was Moog. I thought it was Moog too, and when I told uh, my wife Rachel that I was going to be recording an episode with you on on Moog, she was like, "What's that?" Yeah, and she was like, "Is it not Moog?" And I was like, "Yeah, I used to think the same thing, but uh, apparently we're just all super ignorant because Moog is not an acronym for no. something. No, it doesn't stand for Massive Open Online Gorillas or modu- stand- Modular Organic." OLED garage? I don't know. No, it, it doesn't stand for anything. It's it's a person's last name. Right. It's the last name of old Bob Moog, who, not Moog, Bob Moog. <laughs> it's a hard habit to break, dude. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I remember I did a podcast with Chris Paulette years and years and years ago, and I think I said Moog synthesizer in that, and I was- you get some angry, angry letters. I was, I was thrashed about the neck and wrists- with a with a ruler, which Chris what, kept on himself. By Chris, yeah. Or, oh, no, okay. I mean, well, he's a percussionist for one, uh-huh. and you know, he's been in bands. You know, he opened a big for Keith Emerson fan. He opened for uh for Indigo Girls. I mean, he he's like we're talking serious musician here. Uh huh. Um, and I'm only slightly ribbing him because that's all true. But no, he he was very kind actually to point out my my faux pas. Now, but yeah. I don't remember many Indigo Girls songs being big on the Moog synthesizers. No, I was just using that as a way of establishing Chris's uh, 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 musical chops in the sense that he was an established musician, not so much to specifically put him in a Moog camp. I would like to attend Moog camp. I bet it'd be fun. <laughs> But uh we wanted to start off, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Moog, we wanted to talk a little bit about electronic music, because part of the story is how electronic music wasn't always an acceptable musical format to the general public, but of course now it's it's an incredibly huge uh, uh genre of music. Well, despite being really popular among some People, I mean, there are lots of people who love electronic music, and that's their favorite genre of music. There is still sometimes you'll see a kind of, I don't know what you call it, a kind of acoustic elitism. Yeah, snobbery. That uh, the, that isn't so much 
at electronic music itself, though you do encounter that a little bit, like like explicitly electronic music, but a lot of times I see it at music that is that uses electronically generated tones in conjunction with traditional arrangements and instruments. So like pop songs that sure. have synthesizers in them. Mm-hmm. So there are like snobby elitist opinions against that. And I wonder why that is. I, I mean, I know there is there's sort of a general idea that electronically generated tones are fake. Which is, you know, they're like, it's almost like they're not real sound. Yeah. When you get down to it, when you really peel away all the layers of this onion, you realize how ludicrous an argument that is because a musical instrument is a construct we use to generate sound. Mm -hmm. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have any electronic components to it, but it's still a tool that we're using to create these musical notes. Like, there's nothing natural. You don't go to the violin tree and pluck a violin <laughs> off the violin tree, right? I mean, these are all tools. You and do so, a Narnia, come on. Well, sure, but my wardrobe broke down like three years ago, so, so I'm n- not going there. You have to there. go to the, the old school violin maker. That's right. Who makes fake violins. Yeah, exactly. Like, you should be arguing like, well, you're not singing, so you're just doing, you're just faking it. Like, unless you're using the human voice and tapping upon your own barrel chest for percussion, <laughs> you, sir, are not a musician. Well, this is a concept we're going to have to revisit throughout the episode yes. today because I, I think it is a central theme of the career of, of Robert Moog. But right. I thought it would be good to start just by asking you, what is some of your favorite electronic music? Right. Uh, you don't have to be Moog-centric here because sure. that might be kind of limiting if if I just say played on a Moog, but right. uh, with electronically generated tones, what do you like? Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to run through these pretty quickly because, I mean, obviously we could we could have an entire podcast dedicated to music. In fact, we used to have a music-oriented podcast from uh, How Stuff Works. Haven't done it in ages. It was stuff from the B-sides. Mm-hmm. I would love to see that come back sometime. But here's some. Uh, first of all, have to mention Daft Punk. Uh, obviously, like that's like the, the kind of clear front runner of electronic music as far as mainstream uh awareness is concerned mm-hmm. uh, outside of just the electronica uh fans who are of course their knowledge runs far more deep than mine right um i could also just lump in pretty much any band that was part of the new wave movement because new wave was very electronic heavy in in certain parts of that uh that movement Kraftwerk uh, <laughs> yes uh the 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 post punk uh new wave movement i love that that genre of music as well. Um, the soundtrack to the original Tron movie. Oh, yes. Love it. Uh, I also like Tron Legacy, which, again, goes back to Daft Punk. But yeah. I love the soundtrack to the original Tron movie. You know we both fight for the users. Yes. And that was scored by Wendy Carlos. Uh-huh. And Wendy Carlos is very important in the history of Moog because Wendy Carlos also did an album called Switched on Bach, which was an early album that really... Uh, pushed Moog into the limelight. Like it, it, it was a very popular album. It hit top 20 charts. And, uh, I own this on vinyl. It is at my house right now. I have a vinyl copy of Switched on Bach. Now, did that album actually make an appearance in the movie A Clockwork Orange or was that, that was Wendy Carlos. Yeah, Wendy it? Carlos scoring Wendy the Carlos classical scored. music in mm-hmm. that. Or wait, that was Beethoven, wasn't it? Beethoven was the 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 piece that was the music. That a was big the big fan of the old Ludwig van. Yeah, that's right, the Ludwig van. But Wendy Carlos scored Clockwork Orange. She also scored The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I like the soundtrack to Lady Hawk. 
I don't know what that is. You don't know what Lady Hawk is? Lady Hawk is a fantasy film from the mid eighties and it starred Matthew Broderick oh. as a thief. Uh, Ruck- Lady Hawk? No, no. He was a thief named Mouse. <laughs> uh, Rucker Hauer played a, uh, Lady Hawk. No, Rucker Hauer was a, a lycanthrope. Nice. Um, who was in love with a, a young lady played by, um, by Lady Hawk? Well, she was the Lady Hawk, but I, <laughs> the name suddenly escapes me, and that's terrible. But anyway, uh, and it'll, it'll kill me. People write in and tell me who was Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, of course. She was Lady Hawk. Uh, so the, the story goes that he turns into a, a wolf at night. She turns Rucker into- Howard does. Rucker Howard. Uh-huh. She turns into a bird in the daytime. They are in love with one another, but they can never be together because- as one is transforming into human, the other one's transforming into animal. And it's this kind of story of tragedy as they, as uh, Rucker Howard's character is looking to enact revenge upon the, the person who has cursed them to this existence. Man, Rutger Hauer has so many uh, time-related struggles. He wants more life. Uh, yeah. He, he needs to be a, a day wolf. Yep. So the, the soundtrack is a mixture of orchestral, uh, and pop synth rock mm-hmm. and uh some people absolutely detest it i love it uh, I, I i love it because it is very much a thing of its time it would not fit in any other time period like if this movie were made in the 90s and it had that soundtrack you would be scratching your head wondering why but in the 80s it was right there at the forefront of this pop synth score movement that some people hate but i love also i mean i mentioned switched on bach have you ever heard of the Disney's Main Street Electrical Parade? I no, I don't know what you're talking about. So it's a parade that uh was very popular at Disney World and Disneyland. Don't know if they still you're do it. You're talking about a physical parade. An actual parade. Yeah, you would go and and find a spot on Main Street and wait. And the floats it was at night and the floats were all lit up with uh various LED lights. I think they were originally like incandescent lights when it was first going because mm-hmm. that's how old the parade For the is. The human sacrifices. Sure. And, uh, the, the, but the music was all electronic, uh, music and very peppy and it included, uh, motifs from various Disney films like Mary Poppins and Pete's Dragon and that kind of stuff. Okay. And, um, and I had that on vinyl. It's a little, uh, uh, a, a little, uh, uh, tiny 45, um, which is great. There was an album called The Moog Cookbook. Did you ever hear this? No, I didn't hear this oh. either. Came out in the mid nineties. The Moog Cookbook is a cover album. Uh, the cover, the songs are all like from the mid nineties, uh-huh. but covered with Moog. So you've got like, wait, is it not the Moog Coke Book? No, it's not the Moog Coke Book. It's the Moog Cookbook. I I looked it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it included uh, Black Hole Sun, Buddy Holly, Basket Case, Free Fallen, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and several other songs. Wait, it included. The artist Buddy Holly or the song Buddy the Holly song by Buddy Weezer. Holly by Weezer, okay. yeah, yeah, because they were all from that that general era. And I also have an unironic love for the music of Styx, in which keyboard solos often play a pivotal role. Well, I can't fault you there. Yeah, some of my own favorite electronic music, like you, a, a lot of the electronic music that came to mind was from soundtracks. Yeah. Of course, I think of the Doctor Who theme, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful early electronic masterpiece. It was uh, composed in the BBC Audio Workshops by somebody named Delia Derbyshire. Or actually, I think it was composed originally by somebody else mm-hmm. as a piece of written music. 
but uh, realized electronically in a fascinating and wonderful way by, by Derbyshire at the BBC then. So much so and, that the original composer actually said at this point, this music is not really my own anymore. It's, it's Derbyshire's. And not that that it wasn't, wasn't distancing from the music. It wasn't saying like, this is a bad thing, but this is a remarkable thing. Yeah. And also I would have to mention the electronic compositions of one John Carpenter. For example, I cannot get enough of the soundtrack of Halloween three season of the witch, a movie with much better music than it deserves. Now, did they use the same motif as uh, the Michael Myers motif in Halloween's one and two? It's been a long time since I've seen. No, it's different. It's got, it's got some of some kind of similar themes weaving in and out, Mm. but, but it's its own thing. You should listen to the Halloween. I mean, that shows up a little bit. Okay. Gotcha. You should just listen to the Halloween three soundtrack. It's great electronic music. I'll have to take a listen. Yeah. I love the John Carpenter stuff. Like I love his stuff from big trouble in little China Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, like even, some of the things that are, are, he's playing songs that are more guitar driven, but you can tell that instead of guitar, they're using a synthesizer, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. Though that's a kind of different thing once you start talking about digitally edited together music. Sure. Uh, but also earlier today, because I knew we were going to do this, I asked my co-host, one of my co-hosts from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Robert Lamb, about his favorite old school synth stuff. Mm-hmm. And he recommended a guy named Mort Garson, who I'd never heard of before, mm-hmm. but who performs under the, uh, he did perform under one name, Lucifer. That yeah. was the, the yeah. performer artist name. And there was an album un- released under the artist name Lucifer that's just great. I listened to it earlier today and I loved it. Great. Uh, it's very moogie. I don't know if it was actually done on a moog, but it, it sounds like it. it's got that old school synthesizer sound right, that sounds right. analog. Um, but, but we should get to the origin of the moog story. Moog. The moog. We should get to the origin of the moog story sure. itself. So who, who was Bob Moog? Yeah. And, and keep in mind, like, when we talk about the Moog story and we're talking about the birth of the analog synthesizer, there were other groups also working on synthesizers at the same time as Moog. But Moog's name has sort of become iconic in mm-hmm. this idea of the analog physical circuitry synthesizer for multiple reasons. So who was he? Well, he's he was born in Queens, New York on May 23rd, 1934, and as a kid, he became really interested in electronics, mm-hmm. just thought it was a fascinating uh, thing. And so he really kind of dove into it. And he also was really interested in the idea of using electronics to make music. I think it's called Mosic. Maybe. Uh, he, he, however, was not um, a musician himself or musician, if you prefer. He was not a musician himself, but he liked the thought of creating the the instruments that would be, you know, would allow someone else to make music. And one of the first things he really became interested in was the theremin, mm-hmm. uh, which we have covered on uh, tech stuff before. The theremin had been invented back in the twenties. So he was, it, that had already been around for quite some time before Moog was even born, but Moog got interested in it. And uh, in case you don't remember what a theremin is, just imagine a box that has a pair of antenna. Typically, you have one uh, vertical antenna and one horizontal antenna poking out of this box. And the uh, antenna rely on radio waves around them. And as you move your hands closer to and away from, you start to interfere with the waves that are around this antenna. You never make contact or you don't 
you're not supposed to make contact with the antenna. You don't have to. It's just by bringing your hands closer or moving them further apart, you can change a tone that is generated by this device. Now, and, what does a theremin sound like? <laughs> y- y- just imagine in your head all of the goofy, bad horror and sci-fi movies you saw in the 1950s. Right. Like, especially sci-fi. I yeah, think. that was big. Like, Flying saucer movies. Yeah, that, and, uh, and typically, like, a, well, not typically, the way it would work is that one of the antenna, uh, would, would, uh, change the pitch mm-hmm. as you moved your hand closer and further away, and the other one controlled the volume. Right. So as your so hand... So one, went... is, one is how high the flying saucer is off the ground, <laughs> and the other one is how close it's coming toward you. Yeah, or whether it's moving toward you or away from you, uh-huh. right? So you go, woo, like, oh, it's getting closer, because Doppler effect. Right. Duh. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it was a really interesting and odd musical device, and Moog was really interested in them. He built his first one when he was either 14 or 15. I've seen reports that cite one age or the other, but right in that, the right in that year age. I saw, I think it was 1954 that he's, well, no, wait, I think that's when he said he sold his first one. Maybe. Right. So he started building them when he was still a teenager. By the age of 19, that's when he started a business. When he, when he sold them. Okay, yeah, yeah. He, he actually, and he didn't just sell theremins. Uh, he did do that, but he also sold kits and partially constructed ones. So in other words, he was helping other DIY enthusiasts. Uh, I assume that if you wanted a completed kit, then that would obviously be more expensive than just buying the parts from him and then the instructions and putting them together yourself. Um, and he and his father kind of created a business together, and it was the R.A. Moog Company. Uh, he then would go on to attend college and go on to graduate school at Cornell and while he was there, he was studying physical engineering. And in 1963, he met a guy named Walter Sear, who was a tuba manufacturer. You mean a toba manufacturer? No. How many times are we going to do this, Joe? I don't I'm, know. You're not the one who I gets the email, had my Joe. Bill yet. <laughs> but anyway, a tuba manufacturer, huh? Uh, yes. Um, in fact, how many people have that job? I at least one. <laughs> all right, at least one in how 1963. Tuba manufacturers operate in the world at the same time. You do wonder what the uh, you know. How tubas have to last a long time, right? Uh There's got to be a major resell. Oh, my tuba (laughs) expired. I got to check it out. (laughs) I need to go buy a new tuba. Uh, so yeah, he, he met Walter Sear and Sear thought that Moog was an interesting guy and said that Moog should, uh, go to the New York State School Music Association gathering. And while he was there, he met another guy named Herb Deutsch. And Deutsch was part of the experimental music movement that was starting to really kind of play with the idea of what is music and what what can be music yeah. and what can music do. Like really pushing the boundary, going beyond just the simple construction of a song and and getting really weird yeah, and stuff. And, and Moog talks about how it was his meeting with Deutsch that sort of really got him interested in electronic music and wanting to build equipment that would help us create new kinds of sounds. Yeah. The two of them kind of agreed that this would be a really interesting prospect. The idea of building a device specifically to create new sounds for music. And uh, so with Deutsch's urging, uh, that's what Moog set out to do. And he created a shop near Ithaca, New York, uh, and began to experiment using silicon transistors as so the basic components. Transistors were kind of a game changer at the time, right? Absolutely, it, yeah. T- totally changing what you could do with electronic equipment. Well, it certainly changed, yes, and the main reason is because they took up less space and generated less heat than the alternatives, right? Which the, would be vacuum tubes. Exactly. 
So there were certainly electronics before transistors, but they were larger and they generated way more heat. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to have an electronic device that was a musical instrument before the invention of the transistor, you're looking at some pretty unwieldy equipment. It's going to be bigger and hotter than what you would find later on once you switched over to transistors. So he began to look at transistors to be the basis of the circuitry he would use to create a uh, a Moog musical instrument. And uh, he found that he could alter the pitch. like As long as he created frequencies that were within the range of human hearing, he could alter the pitch by changing the voltage in various circuits before sending that uh, signal out to, to a loudspeaker. Uh-huh. So as long as you keep the frequency between, say, 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz, that's the range <laughs> of human hearing, then you can do that. If you go beyond that, obviously, then you... you most people are unable to perceive it. And obviously, not everyone has exactly that range, right? Some people start, especially as you get older, you start to lose the ability to perceive at the higher end, uh, which is why I no longer hear children. Oh, yeah. I remember those stories about the uh, the cell phone tones that only kids could hear because they're too high pitched for adults to hear. Was that true or was that, ho- that a hoax? I don't know. I, I heard a similar story about how uh, how like um uh, gas stations were employing loudspeaker systems that would play that pitch at a high volume because adults couldn't hear it and it discouraged kids from loitering. Oh man. That's 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 another story well, I heard, see, but I don't that, know if that's true. If you wanted to be a really cool syn- uh, uh synthesizer musician, you could create a musical instrument that only plays in the frequency range that adults can't hear. Yeah. And so th- you couldn't have stodgy adults coming into your concert and just well, I guess you could have them just there pretending to hear. They, or, pretending or they would, or cool. they just say like, I don't understand the music these days. Yeah. Uh, or. Yeah, yeah, I hear it, man. You go a step further and you just make music for dogs. Uh huh. You know, you could do that. So, uh, so Moog created a circuit. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> one of the, one of the music stores I go to here in town. Yeah. Called, uh, it's Decatur CD. If yeah. If you go in there, there's uh, an album they sell. They've always got in stock that I think is called Music for Dogs. Really? Or it might be called like Music Dogs Love. I've never listened to it. Yeah. Yeah, just be a bunch of cats meowing. I don't know what yeah. it is. Maybe maybe a doorbell occasionally. <laughs> I'll have to ask about it next time. <laughs> well, Mo created a circuit that produced a pitch, and then uh, with an increase of one volt, that pitch would go up one octave. Oh, that's convenient. Right? And then the pitch would change back and forth using different types of waveforms, which I will cover later on in this episode. So I'll, I'll explain all about the different waveforms because that's an important part of what makes a Moog sound the way it does and other analog synthesizers as well. Uh, and it would create this sort of weird vibrato sound. And he gave the instrument his own last name, possibly following the lead of Theremin. Theremin was named after the guy who invented it. It's, really? I yeah. didn't know that. It's not a word that was made up for the device. It's actually named after the inventor. It sounds like a made-up word. It does. But it was somebody named, like, like Jeff Theremin. Yeah, it was exactly that. It was Jeff Theremin. Wait, really? No, no. it was not. <laughs> okay. But at any rate, no, It's it, he decided to name it after himself. You know, there are tapes of Moog 
giving early demonstrations of of his synthesizer equipment when he when he was very first developing it. And in one of those tapes that I heard by listening to the documentary Moog, which which is a documentary that uh, that I watched online about Robert Moog. Yeah, and it's available on YouTube, so you can actually watch the whole thing, right? Yeah, it might be a bootleg. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, well, it definitely is there. If you want to unethically watch the whole thing, it's on there. <laughs> but yeah, so there it, there was a 1964 demonstration where uh, Moog is talking about a, a prototype modular synthesizer, and he calls it the Abominatron. <laughs> and I love that. So he obviously has a sense of humor about it, but it does kind of get to a problem that Moog started noticing when he was first making his his synthesizers public. Mm-hmm. He says that people reacted to it by saying it wasn't natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he says that, that, you know, their first response was that it, it was just not right. Something about using this electronic means of creating musical pitch was not the way things should be in music. And he even tells a story where there's an interviewer who was, you know, interviewing him about his new technology, and he leans into him, and the inter- interviewer says, Tell me, Mr. Moog, don't you feel guilty about what you've done? Sick burn. <laughs> and uh, so Moog's interpretation of that is that the the reporter's point of view was that by creating the means to generate tones without traditional instruments made of wood or brass or plucking strings or something like that. He was somehow perverting and destroying music, doing something offensive to an ancient tradition from human culture. Which, again, to me, is ludicrous on the very face of it, because the history of music is one of innovation, where people have created instruments that are more capable than their predecessors, right? The piano forte is a lot different than the ancestors to the piano. Well, yeah, and I hate to break it to these people, but the piano has not existed for 10,000 years. The piano is only a few hundred years old. Right. And before that, they were, you know, you had the harpsichord where you had the plucking of metal tabs as opposed to the uh, the percussion of strings. And uh, if you look at the history of music, it, again, it is all about innovation. And so I think it was just that it sounded so different from the stuff that came before it, that people's initial reaction was one of confusion. And maybe they were a little unsettled that this thing that did not have any moving parts to it, Unlike something like, a, a, you know, a stringed instrument where you can actually see the action that is creating the sound that you hear or a, a wind instrument where you can see that the musician is breathing life into this object and uh-huh. you're getting music out of it. This is a monstrosity of a machine of wires and, and uh, transistors that, you know, when you press a button, a sound comes out of it. And I think it must have just felt like it was too far removed for some people to be comfortable with it. Well, one possibility that comes up, this is also from Moog's comments in that documentary, and I think this is really interesting. I've always thought of the idea of a synthesizer Mm -hmm. as, okay, it has that name because it creates something synthetic, like there are natural sounds and then there are synthetic sounds as in fake sounds right. created by this fake sound making machine, the synthesizer. Right. The but idea, that, the idea being that this, this device can synthesize the sound uh-huh. of other 
quote unquote real musical instruments. But that's not at all the sense in which the name was originally intended. It w- originally Moog says the, the the term synthesizer came from the other main meaning of synthesis, like the combination of elements to create a whole. Yeah. Like when you, you know, you take a bunch of research sources and synthesize them into a single coherent vision of something. Right. Like a like a dissertation of some sort. Yeah, that would be synthesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so and that applies to his technology, because originally what Moog was creating was individual modules. Yeah. For modulating sound. So you'd make a module that generates a square wave or a module that does this or a module that does that. And if you combine all these modules together into a single huge instrument that you can manipulate in lots of different ways, you're essentially creating an electronic music modulation synthesis. Yeah. It's a, it's a synthesizer. It's, it's, it's a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts in yeah. many, in many ways. Cause these modules are arranged in such a way so that you can connect them in in different ways dynamically like you can change yeah. the connections so it's not like you can plug one into another yeah and, and, or you and can bypass made, them. now you've made a new type of machine yep and that's that's the i mean that's the whole basis of modular uh electronics and modular inventions it's this idea that by making these combinations you can innovate you know, we've seen that in technology in other areas, too. The idea like the modular phone, where you put a phone together with just the elements that you want. And there are a couple of different companies that are trying this approach out. And, it, you know, we'll have to wait and see if that actually becomes successful. But it's a really interesting idea where the consumer determines what his or her phone has just based on the modules you want to include. And you leave out anything you're not interested in. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the same idea behind the synthesizer, except, of course, the goal was what are the different ways we can manipulate electronic frequencies to create different types of sound. Yeah. And so eventually Moog did uh, bring a model to market. Yeah. He he actually made quite a few different uh, models. One uh-huh. of one of the ones that was in development for a very long time was the mini Moog. I think that was a popular one. Yeah. So the Mo- Moogs are um, like if you're thinking of just a keyboard, you are way off. A Moog is mm. buying a Moog is like buying a boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they talked about it in in some detail in this documentary where Moog talks about how when they sold these things originally, mm. it was kind of a tricky business because it wasn't like, you know, they're generating Fender Stratocasters and then sell 100,000 of them a month or something like that. Right. I don't know how many Stratocasters they actually <laughs> sell, but it wasn't a mass market item. Right. They were making them one at a time mm. and selling them one at a time, and they were very bulky and very expensive. And so most of their customers were people who had a lot of money and expected to get a lot of use out of the machine. Right. So, for example, like a, a music house studio that recorded commercial jingles or right. something like or that. Or soundtracks to 1950s science fiction films. Sure. So... Uh, the way I tend to describe these early synthesizers, these analog synthesizers, is that imagine that you've got a keyboard and it's attached to a what looks like a old-fashioned telephone switchboard, uh-huh. the kind where you would plug cables in to make the connections. Like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ring her for you, and you plug the cable in, and then you make the actual physical connection between two lines. Similar to that, except, of course, instead of connecting two lines, you are 
connecting modules together to manipulate a an electronic signal in some way. When I used to see Moog synthesizer boards with all of the cables hanging out of them, what I honestly thought was that this was just people it, it was like intentional obscurity mm. i thought it was people just trying to look cool or be funny by having all these cables hanging out no that's how you make the sound of your instrument is by plugging like 50 different cables into different places right and it all depends on how many modules you have as part of your synthesizer right right that's right? if you have one of the big ones yeah cuz cuz i mean if you have just a few modules then one your synthesizer is going to be more limited you won't be able to do as many variations on that electronic signal as you could with one that has a lot more modules, mm-hmm. but it'd also be smaller. <laughs> like that was the idea of the mini Moog, right? Was the idea that let's try and get something that is of a manageable size because these are big instruments. Um, so one of the other uh, models that became famous uh, with the Moog name and somewhat controversially uh, is the Sonic Six, which began its life as a different device that was made by someone who had originally worked for Moog, left the company, ended up joining another company. That company ended up buying Moog because, as you were pointing out, the business model Moog was following was pretty limited. It was it was hard to make a profit. It was hard to stay afloat. And so I believe the that Moog was sold for something like a quarter of a million dollars, which was the amount of debt it had accrued. And, uh, but they decided to keep the Moog name because it had real brand recognition among musicians. And they actually did take this pre-existing prototype that was originally not a Moog device, changed it around a little bit by adding in some components that were found in Moog devices and put that to market. So it's the Sonic 6 is very different from the other Moog, uh, instruments of that time. But, um, and it's one of those that, that still like, like aficionados still really love that particular instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moog himself passed away in 2005, but the Moog brand name still exists. You can still buy products from Moog. It's not, a, it's kind of, it's not, not as bad as Atari, but it is kind of different from the original Moog company, <laughs> but, but it, it has a stronger claim to that name than say anything that you call Atari these days. That name is, is, long since severed all connection to its origins. Well, then what is it you really think of as being the essence of the legacy of Moog? I I don't know to what extent this is true about the products they create today, but historically I think of Moog as being a company associated with analog electronic music right. as opposed to digitally digitally created electronic tones. Yeah, and and the difference there is important. Uh, although you could argue that our, our ability to get ever more refined digital music has largely erased the gap between the two, there still is a fundamental difference in the technology. And, uh, the best way of, of explaining this is to imagine that the sound you get with analog, uh, instrumentation and analog recording is a continuous wave of sound, right? Like just as I am creating sound right now to you, Joe, maybe not to the listeners because they're listening to a digital file, but to you, Joe, I'm creating sound that is a continuous, uh, a wave every time I'm generating that sound. Right. But you, you listeners at home are getting, unfortunately, just a sampling. That's true. Jonathan's voice. Because that's the digital conversion. So if you were to look at, uh, analog music in a, in a form where you're, you know, you're trying to visualize it, 
we always use the wave form, right? That's, that's how we, we visually depict a, a sound file or a sound or rather a, a sound uh, wave in an analog format. Um, and this is because it's continuous. There's no point where in one moment it ends and the next moment it begins for, for a single sound. It's, it's continuous until the sound is done. Um, this is different from digital. Digital is discrete. Digital, you have numbers that represent a single slice of time, at which point there is a sound. And the number of slices of time you have within, say, a second tells you the sample rate that you have for your digital sound file. The sample rate is how many times you sample that sound within a second mm-hmm. uh, to represent it in a digital format. The more times you do it, the closer it's going to sound to the original analog source but also the more information you are including in your sound file. Your file gets bigger and bigger as your sample rate goes up, right? But if your sample rate is really low, then it's almost like you are only able to listen to a fraction of a second of each moment that you're listening to music. It'll be a very different experience than if it's a continuous experience, you know, a continuous, uh, uh, performance. Yeah. And, um, you also, but that that all applies to playback and stuff. Yes. So say like recording a piece of uh, music and then playing it back. You, you could have an analog playback format like a vinyl record mm-hmm. or a digital playback format like an MP3 or a, a CD, CD or sure. something. Uh, but but here we're we're talking about the generation of yeah. sounds inside the machine, and right. that that happens differently in digital versus analog ways too. Yeah. So in the digital version. The way Moog would explain it is, you know, you've got a, a sound saved in memory that's represented digitally, mm-hmm. is a set of values. You call that up, you send it to the, the speakers, and the speakers play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they create the vibrations there. With an analog-generated tone, what's coming out of the speakers is generated by the natural vibrations of the electronic components in the machine. Right, and by by vibrations, we're talking about the frequency of yeah. the... The uh, electronic signal. Yeah. So, so so it's the circuitry that's making the sound. Right. As opposed to just replicating something with ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. It, it is a bit of a fine distinction. There's also uh, there's also another concept called sample precision, which tells you how big a gradation you have when you're doing a step from one sampled moment of a of a piece to the next. Um like, are you able to get that so precise that it feels like a continuous piece of music? Because one of the things about a, a analog wave is that you have an infinite number of values within any analog wave, mm-hmm. right? Because you could just keep getting more and more fine tuned. So, uh, like, a if you're looking at a 60 hertz, uh, frequency sound wave where it's going from positive 60 to negative 60 hertz, any point in there, you could say like, all right, well, here's 20 hertz right here. This is the the part of a, a period of a wave where it's at 20 hertz. But then you could zoom in and say, okay, well, here's 20.5 hertz. You could zoom in more. Is it Here's 20.55 hertz. And you could keep on doing that. With digital, you can't. You have a specific value for a specific moment of time, and then you have a specific value for the next moment of time, but there's nothing in between. You can't. You can't zoom in any further. You are as far in as you can go. So they are discrete. There is a finite 
amount of representation in a digital file, there is infinite in analog. Jonathan, are you trying to get me to have thoughts about my mortality? You know, I got some stuff to sell you after the end of this podcast, but I'll (laughs) I'll save it for when we're off the air. So one thing I thought would be really cool, obviously, is to talk about these modules, the circuitry that are that's in a Moog synthesizer and actually explain what the heck these things do. Because if you know, we're talking about generalities and and the the principles behind it, but how does it actually work? Right. Well, we we mentioned before that the the this idea of a synthesizer is made out of modules. Mm -hmm. And that's modules in the sense of something being modular, right? Yeah. Like they're, they're pieces that you can insert and exchange. Yeah, the basic idea is that each module does something specific and relatively simple. Uh, you get even more simple when you look at the components within those modules. They are, they are like the embodiment of that idea. Each circuitry component does a very specific thing, and that's all it does. And that simplicity is what allows you to pair these with other elements to create more complexity. So when you break it down to its individual parts, it's simple. Mm -hmm. When you put them all collectively together, that's where it gets complex, and you start to think, you got to have a degree in physics to play this instrument. And uh, it's really cool. Well, we know that there are going to be a lot of different ways of manipulating the sound electronically, but I'm interested in where the sound actually comes from. What, like, so a sound is a vibration in the air, but yeah. that's got to originate with something oscillating inside the equipment. Where does that come from? It comes from an oscillator, actually, oh. it's, uh, which I originally thought was a, a, a breed of, uh, like, a kind of type of cat, part of the feline family were oscillators. That's apparently ocelots. No, they're called oscillators. Oh, right. So oscillators are, uh, that's what provides the, the, the oscillation, the, uh, frequency here of a, a, an electric, electronic signal. So oscillators don't have to be electronic, right? Oscillators can be, a pendulum is an oscillator. Right. Is it, is it pretty much that if anything goes back and forth, it's an oscillator? Pretty much, yeah. It's something that, uh, it has a, uh, a wave. And it has each, you know, it has this periodic behavior to it that repeats until some other force causes it to stop. In the case of a pendulum, friction will eventually cause the pendulum to stop swinging. So when Mo slaps Larry and Curly back and forth rapidly between their two faces, his, his hand is oscillating. Hand is an oscillator. Yeah, it's oscillating, and uh, yeah, so an oscillator swings back and forth a certain number of times in a or a certain number. Within a certain time period, usually we talk about a second being the time period and the number would be, uh, at least in sound, we talk about it in hertz Mm -hmm. uh, by the length of time that a wave's period passes through a certain stationary point. So a period on a wave, you pick a stationary point on a wave. Let's the easiest is either the peak or the trough, like the lowest point or the highest point on a wave. And you go to the next Peak or trough, whichever one you picked. So peak to peak, so you trough don't to trough. go from mountain to valley, but mountain no, to mountain. Mountain to mountain. And that distance from that same point on those, on that, those two sections, that's the period of the wave. And the number of times that passes, uh, that happens within a second, that's the frequency. And if it happens 20 times in a second, that's 20 hertz. Hertz is the unit we give for frequency. And 20 hertz is, again, at that low level of perception for humans. Like that's, that's about as low as you can go after that. When you go lower than 20 Hertz, you get into sounds that you cannot hear, but you can feel like if you've ever felt 
the force of something, but you're not actually hearing anything, that's probably below 20 hertz. Uh, and then, of course, if you get up to 20,000 hertz, that means that the waves are repeating 20,000 times a second. That's at the upper end of human hearing. And also, the frequency relates to the pitch, right? Right. The lower the frequency, the lower the pitch. The higher the frequency, yeah. the higher the pitch. The more vibrations per second, the higher it sounds. Exactly. So uh, the oscillator is the heart of the synthesizer. The oscillator is what allows this frequency to happen and then be sent to the other modules to have it altered in some way. So you could just use an oscillator. In fact, you could just use an oscillator connected to speakers, but you would just constantly be generating noise uh, because there'd be no governing element there to stop it from making noise. As long as, of course, it had a signal coming into it, you obviously have to feed it with electricity. So a very simple oscillator would be pairing a capacitor with an inductor. These are two very basic electronic components. And a capacitor is essentially a pair of plates, and you build up the charge on one plate until there's enough charge for it to jump across the gap. So capacitors are kind of like batteries. They store energy, but they release all their energy in a single go. They're fast-acting batteries. Yeah, so <laughs> like the the flash on an old camera flash, that works by capacitor because you want it to release energy all at once. If it were a battery, the light would take too long to light up and go down, and it would you would never get a good photograph. So uh, they're different from batteries in that they release all that energy at one time. The inductor is essentially a coil of wire. And when it encounters uh, electrical charge, it creates a magnetic field. So if you pair a capacitor with an inductor, what happens is electricity goes from the capacitor, discharges into the inductor, which creates a magnetic field. It, that magnetic field begins to build up a charge on the capacitor's other plate. So you're getting the po- polar opposite charge. So talk about voltages, actually. You get the polar opposite voltage. So... You put in 60 volts on one side, it's the minus 60 volts coming back the other way. Uh, it's the way we describe the the movement of electricity here. Uh-huh. And then it discharges again, but now it's the opposite polarity, and then it does it again. So you, that's why when you look at the, the wave depiction of uh, sound, you have those peaks and those valleys. It's the going from the positive end to the negative end of whatever that sound actually is. Um and it's pretty neat stuff. That's a very, but that's a very basic oscillator. That's, and also you, it would just like a pendulum would eventually stop because of friction. Electronic oscillators would eventually stop. If you don't feed more energy into them, they'd eventually stop because of resistance. You know, you have resistance with electric wires. That means you lose some energy to heat. And eventually you would lose enough where if you didn't pour more energy into it, it would just stop. You wouldn't have enough energy to discharge the capacitor in the first place. So um, a lot of reasons why it's similar to a physical oscillator. So that's your very basic component that is important. But like I said, if you don't have anything else, like if you had a keyboard connected to an oscillator that was connected to a speaker, like an amplifier and a speaker, then it would always be making noise. You could change the pitch by pressing keys on the keyboard, but it would never stop. <laughs> like it would, you would just be like, unplug this thing. It's a monstrosity. So it sounds like you need a way, some kind of gate. Yeah. A gatekeeper for voltage. And that would be the voltage controlled amplifier or VCA, which can raise or lower the volume of a synthesizer. And so it affects the amplitude of a wave. The amplitude is how high 
and low those peaks and troughs are, right? Mm -hmm. So the frequency is the number within a certain given amount of time. The amplitude is the height, the the volume, essentially, uh, of this. And so with a VCA, you can lower that volume to nothing, and you can create a gate where the the is a very simple logic gate, which essentially says if there's a signal coming in, then allow it to go to the speaker. So you would connect that so that when you press a key, that's essentially a signal saying, I would like you to make sound now. And when you stop pressing the key, it's, I would like you to stop making that horrible noise. And the VCA is what allows that to happen. So that's another very basic component. Um, Why then, are you so abusive to your electronics? Look, they're there for me, all right? I'm not <laughs> there for them. You gotta understand who's boss. Otherwise, electronics will rule your life. Okay, guys, this is Jonathan. You've been listening to me and Joe talk for a while. This show ended up being way longer than what we anticipated. So in the interest of preserving sanity and Noel's, uh, preservation as well. We're going to divide this up into two episodes. So this is the conclusion of part one. We will return with part two to continue our discussion about electronics and Moog synthesizers and analog synthesizers and all that goodness uh, in next week's episode. So just want to remind you guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, you can always let me know. The email address you can use is techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr with the handle TechStuffHSW and I'll talk to you again about more Moog really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 